coming. Glad you're here. Um, as we look at God's Word for the next few minutes, I'd like you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be starting with verses 1 to 11. And tonight what we're going to do is a little bit different. We're actually going to do a 30,000 foot view of the whole book of Philippians. Um, but our main text is going to be here in chapter 2 verses 1 to 11. And you might be saying, well, wait, if we're doing a whole view of the book, why are we starting in the middle? And I would say, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked, because <laughs> we're going to talk about it. Um, and my answer for that is the Nazca Lines. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of that. I thought not. The Nazca Lines are in southern Chile and Peru, and they are man-made, dated to around the time of Christ, these desert drawings just out in the middle of nowhere. They're dated about either give or take 200 years around the time of Christ, and nobody really knows what they're there for, where they came from, and they're, they're pretty impressive if, you, if you're able to see them, and these lines, they just kind of go everywhere throughout the middle of the desert. But when you get an aerial view, you get a whole new understanding because these ancient people made animals, drawings of people, designs, shapes, all of these different things that you can only see from an airplane or even from space. And, and while, just like the book of Philippians, while every verse is magnificent and impressive and just seems to go on forever with how deep on the ground, a 30,000-foot view opens up a whole new understanding. And so that's why I'd like to do that tonight. Now, I don't say all that just for an interesting history lesson, <laughs> but because I think that verse by verse, what we do on Sunday morning is super important. And our, our pastors have labored faithfully to exposit the text, but also when we do just like the Nazca lines show us uh, one of the most famous ones is a spider that's over 250 feet long. Well, when we do this whole book tonight, I hope by the end of it, you'll see something better than a spider. <laughs> so um, let's pray one more time and then we'll pick up in chapter two, verse one. Lord, I'm grateful that you've brought us here together as a, as a body to look at your word and to learn from it. And I pray that I would sit under the teaching of this word. I pray that all of us would sit under the teaching of this word. Father, I pray that I might decrease so that you may increase. Lord, I pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. Pick it up in verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or else exploited, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Right? And now, there are some texts in the Bible that we just got to let sit for a minute. And, and this is one of those. And honestly, we could just call it a night right here and still all be edified. Because 
this passage is so clear and so beautiful in how it presents the risen Christ. But what I'd like to do for the next few minutes is to try and dig even more glory out of this passage. Because while Philippians is a short book, it's only, about four, it's only four chapters, uh, that most people associate with what I like to call the Hobby Lobby verses, right? I can do all things through Christ who centered me. You're like, why is that in the bathroom? And, but this book, I think, is, is, in my opinion, one of the most practical books in all of Scripture. And to steal Jeff's thunder, it's one of my favorites. Um, so, because what Paul does in Philippians is he makes a practical point. He takes this picture of Christ that we just read about and he says, this is what beholding this Christ looks like in the life of a Christian. And we could spend days here, I'll spare you, but we could spend days here unpacking the nature of Christ, his work, his resurrection, his exaltation. But again, those are all beautiful theological truths. He's making a practical point too and it's gonna be our first point tonight. We must behold Christ as he is. We must behold Christ as he is. See, Paul here is painting a picture of who Jesus really is. Not the misperceptions of who Jesus is supposed to be then or today. Not a tame or weak Jesus. And most certainly not a man who's just come to be a good teacher. Now, this is the true Christ the Son of God who has stepped out of glory and emptied himself of the riches of heaven to be made poor for us. And even after that, how does he come? In pomp and in circumstance and as this exalted king? No. He comes in humility in the form of, and our text says, in the form of a servant. Church, do you feel the tension there? The the tension of, of this king of heaven with the riches and the glories of heaven about him and yet empties himself into the form of a servant. The eternal son who the entire universe was created through and who holds it together simply by the word, by the whisper of his power comes as an infant and lives a life of humble submission. That should take our breath away. But sometimes do we get so caught up with this idea of, well, of course he does. That's just what Jesus does. That we forget the reality of the incarnation. Is there a sense that we've become too familiar with it that we forget what this really means. Now, just for a moment, I want you to imagine with me that we're we're all reading this passage for the first time. And we've just read about how this king of heaven has has emptied himself, has, has given up the glories and riches of heaven to come and live as a servant, and you're like, wow. How can he top that? And then it says, well, he's obedient. And you're like, wow. He doesn't have, he can tell anybody what to do, and yet he's obedient. Obedient to what? To the point of death, even to death on a cross, the most humiliating and painful death ever imagined. The point Paul's making is that this Jesus is led in love to die for his people and to be obedient to God's plan, even if it costs him everything. 
but in a moment that every movie you will ever watch tries to recapture in this broken and smaller way what happens. The hero returns triumphant. Christ is raised and he is exalted with what? A name that is above every name and the one to whom every knee will bow. Every human who has ever lived the great mountains that inspire us, the vast oceans that will never fully be explored. Even his great old enemy, the serpent, will bow in humble submission to this Christ, the risen and reigning King. And even the most vile of tongues will one day confess what? That he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see the weight of glory here? Do you see how we've lost it? Let's recapture that. That's, that's what I hope we can do tonight is to recapture that feeling of weight in this. We've lost it because we have taken this risen and glorified Savior as a thing to be studied and not a king to behold. Church, I believe that the Spirit inspired this very passage to reawaken our cold and so often dead hearts, especially in the Reformed community. This can so often mark us. As I said before, these truths are theological. There's no way around that. And, and thanks be to God for it. But they're also practical. Look at verses 1 to 4 again in chapter 2. He's been doing what? Commending Christian love and unity. But not just because... Not just like this is what you're supposed to do. No, he's saying do this and here's why. Look at what he's done. And he's going to give you the same spirit. Don't forsake it. See, the only way that we can do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than ourselves is if we behold Christ as he is. This is the reason that we've started here tonight. This is the first thing. And if we had the time, I could take you through every single verse of Philippians and show you how Paul is dragging their eyes back to this Savior. See, everything else in Philippians is a working out of beholding this Jesus. And when we do, our lives change. And one of those changes is our next point. Point number two. Beholding Christ as he is causes us to rejoice. Beholding Christ as he is causes us to rejoice. Do you know how many times rejoice or to have joy is found in Philippians? 16 in four chapters. 16 times. It's only 104 verses. Why do you think that is? Do you think maybe Paul's kind of talking about this, this, this nebulous joy that just kind of wells up or like a just, you just got to like fake it till you make it, guys? Is that what he's calling for? No. Let's remember where Paul is right now. He's sitting in prison in Rome, probably having to have someone else write this letter for him because to the best of our knowledge, he might have been at least partially blind waiting to appeal Caesar, the most powerful man on earth, which usually meant execution. 
And yet he goes on to say in chapter 1 that I rejoice in Christ being proclaimed even if it causes me more suffering in prison. Because why? Because Christ is made known. And we know the Philippian church, they struggle with persecution and likely uh, as a result of that extreme poverty. Yet Paul has the audacity to tell them twice, emphatically in chapter 4, rejoice. And he doesn't even stop there. He goes on and says, don't even be anxious. Too often we'll read these and we'll say, well, those are, that, that, that's what Paul was just writing to those people. Or maybe it's, you know, joy is for when I don't have as much going on as I do right now. Or it's for the super Christian. But these people were more well acquainted with suffering than you and I likely will ever be. And they could still rejoice in Christ. Do, do you see? Why? Because their joy is found in something other than themselves and their circumstances and what they have. They have the Bible's version of joy. One that is based and secured and established and accomplished in Christ alone. Pastor Clay reminded us this morning that joy is something Paul expected as the fruit of a Christian. This isn't a bonus. This is what marks us as a people. Jesus would even say, you'll know my people by their love. Love stemming out of what? Out of joy. The reason that we struggle with a lack of joy is not because we're some second-rate Christian who just didn't get that gift. It's because our vision is focused on the wrong things. The author of Hebrews 12, if you remember, we just read this a few weeks ago, a few months ago, uh, reminds us that we're to press on in this life by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the, listen, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you catch that? For the joy that was set before him, Jesus was mocked and scorned and beaten and hung on a tree that he called into being, enduring a wrath that you and I deserve. And he called it joy. And we can't have joy because we're inconvenienced? Do, do you see? If we have Christ, we have this joy set before us. Church, we can endure all of it and still have life, still have everything. Something we'll talk about in a moment. But guys, this, this church, this is what we're talking about. Because when, when we behold Christ, do our problems go away? Do we declare victory and it just kind of slaps off? No. Do we just kind of forget about it? No. 
we have joy because our perspective is corrected. Philippians 4, I'll give you a minute to turn there. should just be one page. Um, 12 and 13, you probably know it. We get the famous words, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and in every circumstance, I've learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What's the secret, Paul? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. A little more important than hanging in your bathroom wall. See, Paul's able to abound in the lows and even in the suffering because his eyes are fixed on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the risen and reigning king we just read in chapter 2. That's the Jesus that we're talking about here. The joy that he has in Christ sustains him when he feels like his life is being poured out You'll see that in chapter 2 and elsewhere in Paul's writings. And I think it's a phrase that we can all relate to. The point being that when we have nothing but Christ, we discover Him to be all satisfying. Oh, church, taste and see that the Lord is good. And when Paul abounds in plenty, he knows this can never be what he looks to for joy because can they ever ever satisfy no and if you think this is something that's changed I encourage you tonight go home and turn on the TV for about five minutes and just watch a few ads and I promise you they're all selling you one thing what is it joy no matter the product no matter the ad you can finally be happy you can be like these people who are smiling if you just get one more thing, what we got. And we hear it over and over and over and over and over and we start to think, you know what, maybe they're right. But let's be honest, we all know it's a lie. And it, all our securities all our possessions, all our comforts, all our wealth can be gone in a moment. Look at Job. And they're nothing more than empty wells that we keep running to and running to and all we get is sand and tired and depressed and bitter because we took our eyes off of Christ and placed them on the throne. And they are cruel taskmasters. So church, who have you fixed your eye upon? Are you buying the world's lie that what you really need is just one more thing? Are you fixed on Jesus and able to be content in plenty and in need? Because only one of these things will last for eternity. Let's not be caught in the parable of the man who's trying to build another silo for tomorrow because what does God tell him? You fool. Your life is demanded of you tonight and all this isn't going to come with you. It's going to stay here. See, Paul knew this. 
And that's why he was able to talk so much about joy, even though it cost him everything. That's going to be our third point. Beholding this Christ is worth the loss of everything. Beholding this Christ is worth the loss of everything. If you flip to chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, you get this picture of Paul. We'll call it Paul's testimony. And I like to call Philippians Paul's missionary update. And uh, this is where he kind of slaps his testimony in there. And, and he goes, listen, pretty much, in, and Shai Lin, the world's greatest theologian, uh, <laughs> he, he has a song called I'm Better Than You <laughs> and about these verses. Because essentially what Paul is saying is if you think that you are righteous or good or holy, I'm better. I'm smarter than you. I'm more zealous than you. I have the better upbringing. I have the better ethnic background. He said, I, and, and we know that Paul was able to get an audience with the high priest. He had him on speed dial. But then, even though Paul and, and the world probably thought he had it all, something happened, right? This man was headed to Damascus with a posse right? And he was confronted by something. He was confronted by something so significant, nothing could ever be the same. Something of surpassing value, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And just a glimpse was so brilliant, he fell to his knees and begged Well, I don't think any of us have had a Damascus Road moment. Um, I mean, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I think that we can all relate to this passage in another way. If you are a parent, think back to the toddler years. For me, that was on the way here. Um, you know that moment when your kid is perfectly content with their snack or their toy or whatever? And then enter stage right, somebody with something slightly better, like 1% better their kid looks back down at their snack or the toy, what happens? Worthless, right? And i got to have that. And in an infinitely more significant way, Paul looked back at everything he had, everything that was a gain to him, everything that he thought made his life great, everything that was his identity, his Jewishness. That, I mean, that's like as core as you can get. What did he call it? Worthless. Do you feel the sting of that conviction, church? Worthless. Look down at verses 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. When Paul has his dramatic encounter in Acts chapter 9, he was finally able to see what he was missing. Christ. And church, if you haven't had that moment yet, I implore you, break through that blindness, hear this gospel, that he is good. Because when Paul had finally beheld Christ, he came away knowing that no matter what the gospel would cost him, it was worth it. It was worth it. 
And he held this truth so dear. I challenge you, go back and start reading Paul's epistles. You see what he'll say? He'll say, my gospel, my God, my Christ, because it was so intimate. He had cast everything else out, and this was it. But it was worth everything. Why is that? Was it just because his sins were forgiven? I don't think it was. And it wasn't simply because he got to go to heaven when he dies. But first and primarily, he said, I get to have Christ. That's the rest of chapter 3. Is that your heart tonight, church? Do you look at the gospel and, and are astounded by the fact that I get to have Christ? Is he what we hold most dear? Or is he waiting in line for a throne that's all too full? Church, this is the remedy for when we are trapped in the things of this world. And it's why we can cast off everything for the sake of knowing him. See, we're fooled into thinking our comforts, our pleasures, our politicians, our whatever are finally going to give us what we need. And again, we just run to this empty well and we beg it to have water this time. What do you think God's accusing Israel of in Hosea? All these broken and worthless idols, you beg for what I will give you, my bride. in reality one thing in all this universe is of surpassing value and it's Christ and it's not even like we have to give up joy or pleasure to take on Christ it's not this idea of like masochism or asceticism look with me at Psalm 1611 you God make known to me the paths of life what in your presence alone there is fullness of joy and it's your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So it is not a putting on of Christ and a casting off of joy and pleasure, but of beholding what is infinitely better and more full of joy and full of life and satisfaction. But to hear somebody smarter than me talk about it, C.S. Lewis explains it in The Weight of Glory this way. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. For we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. If I'm really honest, that last line has haunted me from the moment I've ever read it. We are far too easily pleased. The simple rebuke of that statement. Because how often are we presented with the gift of beholding Christ, and yet we still choose filth in the street. 
Don't be confused. Church, choose the better portion of Christ. See, this is why Paul could be content in all things as we read earlier. Because even if he lost everything, he could still consider it gain because he had more riches than all the nations of the earth together could muster. He had Christ himself. I think sometimes in the gospel we get this idea that we get outsourced by Jesus to some like discount angel. But we are, we, we are his we are found in Him. And, and, and Scripture even tells us that the righteousness we have is not some like Costco extra brand righteousness that He just kind of hands out at the football game. It's His. Hold tightly. And if you're in Christ, you have this too. Let that be a delight. Because we stand in a long line of those who have trusted the pleasures of Christ being worth more than anything this world could offer. Church, this is why Jesus could do what he did. Suffer the death that he died on our behalf and still have love and joy. It's it's what Stephen saw that made him look like an angel and forgive those who were in the process of murdering him. It's the joy that Peter and John had as they limped out of prison after being beaten and still praised God that they were worthy to suffer. Church, this is why Abraham could raise the knife against his one and only beloved son to strike him down had God not stopped him. And it's why you and I could lose everything and still consider it gain. We have him. We have Christ. And Christ will hold us fast. Do you see? And as we started this evening, I made the argument that Philippians is a practical book. And I pray that you can see that. And that even in the weakness of my preaching, the text has reigned supreme. But as we close, I'd like to leave you with with two practical ways to behold Christ. First, we must pursue Christ in his word. 2 Peter 1.19 tells us that we have a word more fully confirmed than anything. Let's remember who Peter is. The man who witnessed the transfiguration, right? The pulling back of the curtain. The man who saw this risen and glorified king that we're talking about in the flesh. And what did he say? The best way, the best way to seek Christ and to behold him is here. I don't think that was by accident, church. See, the means of grace are ordinary. and What a gift that is that we so often overlook. We have God's diary in our hand and yet we're hoping for some pilgrimage or some vision or or whatever to finally give us joy and peace and Christ. We already have Him. In a word, more fully confirmed, perfect, complete. No need for anything else. That's why David wrote in Psalm 119 that God's word is more desirable than gold. 
and sweeter than honey. Not because it was the best read around, but because it could give us Christ. And it still does today. The regular intake of Scripture is what reminds us and shows us of the surpassing value of Christ when everything else in this world tries to sell us cheap substitutes. Church, don't buy it. Because when we fail to be consistently in God's Word, we leave room for what? We have a void that Satan and his lies then leap in to disciple us into finding real joy. So church, I I beg you to fight for this joy, the only joy in all the universe that will satisfy. But what grace it is that this battle is not ours to fight alone. Look around you. This people he has bought with his own blood, a precious people to fight with you. One of the most beautiful passages for me in the Old Testament is after the Exodus, Israel has the war. And Moses is up on a mountain and stuff isn't looking good at first. And Israel is is starting to be overwhelmed. But then Moses just doing what he does, he just raises his hands. And Israel starts to overcome. But he's old and he's weak. And his hands start to droop. And then he watches his family, his people that he gave everything for start to die. And he can do nothing. I think we can all relate to that. But what happens? Aaron and her run up and they grab this old frail man's arms and they hold him up through this battle. Was Moses weak? Yes, Are we weak? Yes. But together, church, look at what can be done. Please don't forsake this. So secondly, we must pursue Christ with the people of God. If you flip all the way back to Philippians 1, very first opening verse, he says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, to all the saints. So when he's writing this letter, in each command that he's giving, he's not just giving it to the pastors or to the whatever, the the title. He's giving it to the body. So when he says, you need to pursue love and community and unity within this body, no matter what. He's talking to the whole church. When he tells them to behold Christ in this way as all satisfying, this isn't just for the super Christian and the pastor, it's for the whole church. When he warns them to defend the gospel against those who distort the truth, the whole church. See, Paul isn't just some dusty old seminary professor writing a letter for pastors. He's a pastor conveying his heart to these people. What's his heart? Let's close where we started in chapter 2. That they would be of the same mind, having the same mind, love, hear this as a command for you all, church, for us all, of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
that we would do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility that we would count others more significant than ourselves. Let each of us look out not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is where? Yours in Christ Jesus. When we behold Christ in his word, we can't help but love his people. They go hand in hand. That's why this passage is the way it is. Paul isn't like just forgetting where he's at and starts writing something else. He sees the importance between verses 1 through 4 and 5 through 11. And I, church, I, I hope that you see it too. So I, I pray that as we seek to behold Christ with unveiled faces, casting off every sin and every weight that so often entangles us, we stay in this body that we're willing to die for because this is where we find life. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we ask that you would show us Christ through the gift of your word and the gift of your people, what a gift it is, give us the joy of him and him alone. Father, we repent that we are far too easily pleased. And we beg that you would not take away our desire for joy, but give us a greater desire for joy so that we may only be satisfied in him. Father, remove our blindness to see Christ for who he really is. Don't let us be driven by duty or family or rules or religions or a ticket to heaven, Lord. Don't let us be fueled by a hope that we might see and behold Christ himself. And as we return now to a week in this fallen and broken and hopeless world, I pray that you would give us a special grace to not lose sight. Clear the mirror for us so that we can look even just momentarily at the celestial city and know that no matter what the cost is, we have to have it and it is worth it. Spirit, illuminate our path that we might glorify you. In Jesus' name, above every name.